You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Welcome to Theophilus. It's wonderful to see you. I uh, had the last two weeks off on vacation with my family to soak up some sunshine. Yes, it was amazing. We spent some time in some waves pushing my kids, teaching them how to surf. And I'll be honest, I uh, kind of wish I was still there. But uh, <laughs> it is wonderful to see you again. Um, I have three quick an- or three announcements this evening before we read the scripture. Um, this is going to be a consistent announcement. It's probably going to get repetitive, and, uh, but I implore you not to tune it out because it's such a huge part of um, what we are going to be focusing on in the, in the fall, and that's our church CSA. So when you walk in the door, you notice empty baskets or baskets full of produce. Um, that Our church is engaging or we are experimenting and leading into this new season, which is going to be a radical success of uh, starting a CSA, which is a community share agriculture together as a community. And how this is going to work is our church will provide the seeds and starts for our communities to take home and plant in your, gar- in your garden. Um, you can take them, you take them to whatever space that you have, put them in the ground, take care of them, water them, and as they bring forth fruit, your family can eat on it, your neighbors can eat on it, but we just ask that you bring a little bit back to our community to share. And that's what those baskets are for. So you'll see today there's a few uh, vegetables in there that people have grown in their gardens, some eggs. Those are for you to take home and to enjoy, to share with your family, your friends. Um, And the hope is that as we continue to grow into this, that this entryway out here turns into a farmer's market where people can just come and just the food is free and beautiful and plentiful for us to share in together. And then I have lots of wild and crazy dreams that go beyond that that I'll wait for another day to share with you. Um, but that, so take seeds and starts, they're out there for you. Take some vegetables that have already been uh, grown and picked and take those home and enjoy them this evening, okay? Secondly, um, we are in August, uh, going back to the fall is September. It's like the beginning of the church calendar. And the plan is for us to, re- to resume life as normal at Theophilus, which from our inception has, uh, has meant eating together as a community. That's what we've always done at this church. Um, so the first week of September is going to be Potluck Sunday, just like normal. Um, one of the problems or one of the challenges that we are facing at this point is, uh, as you know, it takes a lot of energy to put together those meals. And uh, we currently have two cooks um, on who have faithfully given themselves to preparing meals for us. Um, our cook rotation at Theophilus has been once every other month. So our cooks, if we had them cook for us every single month or prepare the meal, they would burn out in T minus two months. Um, So we stagger it and we go every other month. This means that we have people, uh, we have people ready and prepared to make meals for us or to plan the meals and organize it and and get them on the table for us 
for our meals once a month. So at this point, the plan is we are going to resume potluck Sunday, and we will for sure have a meal once a month. Um, and then we will fill in the blanks as uh, people are able and willing and to step up and to fill some of those roles. So Brenna Wilson is in the back. She coordinates our cooks. If you, if it is something that freaks you out but interests you to prepare a meal, go talk to Brenna and she can kind of uh, tame it down for you. And so it's not as scary as it sounds on how to prepare meals. But that's the plan going forward on what the meals are going to look like. Plan on potluck. Hopefully we'll have all weeks covered, but we for sure will have one other meal a week. Okay. Lastly, but definitely not least, um, we have a, a young couple in our family who has been a part of this community for a really, really long time and are moving back east to, be, uh, to start a new job and be by family. Aaron and Jessica Cody. Um, Aaron has been at Theophilus for every stage. He, he has served behind the scenes, like sweating profusely, uh, all the way back to St. David's um, till now. And he has probably contributed uh, on par, if not more than most people in this community in a completely unrecognized fashion. Uh, Aaron and Jessica, thank you so much for your contribution to this community, your investment in here, and the relationships that you have, have built with us and allowed us to build with you have made us richer and we are richer for it. Um, you are going to be missed like crazy much, um, but pray that your time back east, the new job, Jessica, uh, is just a wonderful, wonderful season for you. You just have to come back and visit quarterly or else we will disown you. No, just kidding. Um, so in way of blessing them and sending them, them off, let's pray together over them as a community. Aaron and Jessica right here, if you're around them, how about you guys? Yeah, stand up. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to embarrass you. Stand up. If you guys can lay hands on them, let's bless them and send them off. For those around them, go ahead and cover them. Jesus, we thank you so much for um, the community that you have given to us and people like Aaron and Jessica. We don't take for granted the work and the, um, just the sweat and the sacrifice that they have given to pour into this community in so many ways. We are so unbelievably grateful for it. We pray that as they move into this next chapter, that you, we know that you are going before them. May they see you walk before them, and may they find so much joy in your presence and peace in this whole journey. May it be so rich for them. Reunite them with family that they've been separated for, for a while, and God, I pray that the bonds of family that they're leaving here would grow stronger. We love you. Thank you for them. Bless them richly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. We love you so much. Please stand with me. We will say the creed and read the scripture together. So we will start with the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So today we read from John chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3, and then skipping ahead to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Do you like mysteries? Okay, thank you. I do. Uh, I, I grew up reading the Hardy Boys. Yeah. I also grew up reading Encyclopedia Brown. All right. I was totally captivated and freaked out by the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by that always trench coat clad Robert Stack. Uh, I spent hours as a, a elementary school, middle school, and even high school student reading stuff about Atlantis and the Bermuda Triangle and the JFK assassination and Area 51 and the Illuminati and like anything else that was either like a big crime that hadn't been solved or like some sort of crazy like conspiracy theory kind of thing. And to this day, like I still think when I hear the word mystery, that's what I think of. Either some big unsolved crime or some like conspiracy theory that just needs to be cracked. Because it always seems to me that with enough investigation, you just come across the right fact or the right like little piece of information that nobody has stumbled across before, and you're going to break open this, the, the solution to this mystery. As that sage Fox Mulder asserts, the truth is out there. As an X-Files reference. Okay. All right. Thank you. If I'm honest with myself, the mysteries that have captivated me, though, have always been mysteries like that I'm not a part of, Right? I'm always an outsider looking in on this mystery, trying to like work my way inside to the, to the heart of it. But it occurs to me that we have a lot of mysteries within Christianity as well. And I'll admit, I have not been the person to contemplate and think about those mysteries. Those are not the ones that have captured my attention. But this week and the next several weeks, we're going to explore some of these, uh, what we might call holy mysteries as we continue this series on the Apostles' Creed, unpacking all the different clauses and phrases in this statement that we affirm uh, every week together. Uh, we've already seen um, that uh, the mystery, explored the mystery of uh, Jesus Christ being God's only Son. And last week we talked about what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be our Lord. And so we come to kind of one of the the first like articulations of who Jesus Christ is. This is where the creed's headed. We've just acknowledged Jesus in the creed, and now we're going to talk about some specific things that Christians affirm about Jesus Christ. And each one of them is more mysterious and in some senses weirder than the last. And so this week we are going to start with 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's followed almost inseparably with born of the Virgin Mary, and for sure, like, those two belong together because we often speak of conception and of birth in the same sentence. I mean, conception precedes and anticipates birth. Conception isn't a means unto itself. It is the expectation that something is going to come from that conception. It's miraculous and amazing. It's the bringing of something new into the world. And the creed also speaks of conception and birth together, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But I think it's worth taking time on each of those to contemplate them and understand what's the mystery contained within that. So we're going to do conceived by the Holy Spirit this week. Next week, we will talk about born of the Virgin Mary and try to unpack that some. In reflecting on this part of the creed, uh, I've been pulling a lot from uh, the German theologian Karl Barth. He wrote a wonderful little book called Credo, where he kind of breaks down the Apostles' Creed. And uh, if you ever wanted to kind of get a a journey into Karl Barth's theology, uh, this is a great book to start with. It'll be as confusing as any other sort of Karl Barth text, but it's shorter. Uh, His magnum opus, Dogmatics, is this huge thing because he just couldn't stop writing. He would just like get to another point, and that was a new book. So in Credo, you get all of his dogmatics, but kind of shrunk down a little bit. But when he gets to this part of the creed, he identifies that there's kind of two things going on. He says that there is a general or inner sense of what's happening, and he calls this the mystery of Jesus Christ as true God and true man, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he says there's an inner or special sense of what's going on. He calls this the miracle, the miracle that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Christ has only God as his father and has, Jesus, and has uh, Mary as his mother. And he even acknowledges that these things are inseparable even as they point to one another. Mystery on the one hand, miracle on the other hand. But taken together, they, they describe something that we call the incarnation, which is just a big word to refer to the claim that God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. But how exactly did that happen? Like, what actually do we mean as followers of Christ, by the word incarnation. Well, I think the creed points us in a specific direction, but it still leaves a lot of questions out there. And we're going to take some time to uh, explore some of those unanswered questions. And I'll tell you now that we will not find answers to them all. Some of them are going to remain these hanging questions. But to use Bart's language, this week we're going to focus on the mystery of that statement. And next week we're going to focus on the miracle of incarnation. So what is it that's so mysterious about the incarnation? Well, all of it, really. Like the whole thing, the whole incarnation is mysterious. And it's easy to misunderstand what we mean when we talk about the incarnation. And people have done that for centuries, for nearly 2,000 years. People have tried to think about what do we mean when we say that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ? Like what does that mean and what does it not mean? I think before we can say with any degree of certainty what the incarnation is, maybe we can talk about what the incarnation is not. And this has really been the starting point of the church for 2,000 years. The first three or four centuries of church history are peppered with these conversations about what exactly does the incarnation mean. And usually when the church is starting that conversation, they're starting that conversation by trying to refute what they think is an errant teaching. And so somebody has started teaching something about Jesus Christ and his divinity and his humanity, 
And then the church says, no, that's not quite right. We, we need to offer a corrective to that. And so really the first four big meetings, big councils of the church were about dealing with these overreaches in different directions as people tried to, de- to describe what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. And those, uh, those, in, those er- errant principles, those uh, ideas that weren't quite, quite right, uh, the word that has been attached to those is heresies. And so we're going to talk about heresy in church today in just a little bit. John's gospel begins with, and we just read this, with a preamble similar to what we read in Genesis. He starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning. And that's not an accident. Like John is wanting us to think about the other time that we hear that phrase. And it starts in Genesis, in the beginning, right? John is clearly trying to call us as the readers and the hearers back to this moment before things were created. But then he almost immediately takes a different direction. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Seems like a funny thing to say, I think, to our ears. We don't really use the Word with a capital W in our conversation. In Christian uh, circles, we do, use, we do have a phrase called, uh, that we speak of, the Word of God. And what do we usually mean when we say the Word of God? talking about the Bible, right? Especially in Protestant evangelical circles, like the Word of God. We even say it like here every week, right? We say this is the Word of the Lord. So it could be easy to read the first part of John, in the beginning was the Word, and say, oh, the Word of God, in the beginning was the Scriptures. But that's not at all what John is saying. When he says in the beginning was the Word, he's not making a claim about the Holy Scriptures or about the Bible, in Greek, he writes, in the beginning was halagos. You guys who have listened to me teach up here before know that I go off on some sort of like Greek trail or Hebrew trail almost every time I'm up here. So here we go again. Because I think it's interesting stuff. If you don't think it's interesting, you need to tell me because I'll stop. Um, in the beginning was halagos. And John chose this term because it already had a cultural meaning. It was already an idea that was in the, the, uh, the hearts and the minds of his original audience. And we've kind of lost that. And so maybe we can recapture it together. This Greek concept of logos, the, the Greek word that we translate simply as word. This Greek concept of logos has a philosophical history that goes back to 500 years before the time of Christ. There's this Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And he writes of the Logos as being um, this kind of universal pre-existent reason that anybody can have access to and from which all philosophy flows. And so when, when Heraclitus is, is writing his philosophical book, he doesn't claim that he's coming up with all this stuff on his own. He says that he's tapping into Halagos and that anybody else could as well. But the problem, as he writes, is that uh, human beings are blinded from being able to comprehend the word that we have these blinders on. He writes, of this words being forever, do men prove to be comprehending, both before they hear the word and once they have heard it. For although these things happen according to the word, they're like the unexperienced, experiencing words and deeds such as I explain when I distinguish each thing according to its nature and show how it is. 
Other men are unaware of what they do when they are awake, just as they are forgetful of what they do when they're asleep. He's saying people often don't know what they're hearing when they hear the word, when they hear this appeal to this universal pre-existent reason. So it was 500 years before the time of Christ, before John was writing his gospel. 300 years before the time of Christ. Heraclitus' work has laid a foundation, and now this other Greek philosopher, Aristotle, probably heard of that guy. He expands on this concept, and he talks about halagos as being one of the three different ways that you can really prove a point in rhetoric. There are three things. There's ethos or ethos, and that is uh, sort of the character of the one doing the speaking. That can validate what you're saying if the person is of good character. There's pathos, which is sort of like how it lands with the audience. Does it feel true? Does it feel right? And then he says there's logos. Logos is the actual content of the argument or of the speech itself. And Aristotle says it's this third one that's the most trustworthy because it's kind of neutral. And it's from that usage of the word logos that we get our word logic or logical. When we think, man, that person's being logical or that's a really logical argument. Or when we want to appeal to logic, we're doing the same thing that Aristotle was saying, is we're appealing to halagos, some sort of universal thing that seems to make sense to us. Now, if you come right up to the time of Christ and to when John was writing, there's a Jewish philosopher named Philo. He was a contemporary of John's, lived at the same time, and he imported this idea of logos into his reflections on Judaism trying to like make sense of like, how can I take the verbiage and the concepts of Greek philosophy and all of the wisdom of Judaism and use them to talk to one another? And he talks about logos as being part and parcel of who God is. Not the sum total of God, but what he would call the mind of God, if God could have a mind. He says it's the divine will, or the divine action of God in the world. That is Logos. And it's with this concept in mind, so to speak, that John says, in the beginning was halagos. And that's what takes on flesh. Takes on flesh, this, this very mind, the very will of God. The source of all that's true and reasonable and sure in the universe. That through which all else was created. Halagos of God takes on flesh, enters into time and into the creation that it created and walks among us. Yeah, that doesn't explain anything though. Like that's just still the mystery. How does that work? John and the other gospel writers go on to tell the story of Jesus Christ, a story that many of us are familiar with in our own reading and our own uh, growing up in church and, and, and preaching here. But again, how? How exactly does the word, the divine action of God, take on flesh and walk among us? Well, again, the early church asked this question a lot, and they came up with a lot of answers that they didn't said are wrong. There's a whole huge long list of heresies, what are called Christological heresies, overreaches of people, trying to make sense of this but going too far in one direction or another. There's six that I think are particularly notable. This is not an exhaustive list, 
And it's not even in the order that they occurred in church history. There's adoptionism. Adoptionism is this idea that Jesus of Nazareth was a man, a regular man, who became divine at his baptism. In that moment where the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. That somehow the incarnation happened at that moment. And this regular man was also divinized at the same time. And the church said, no, no, that's not what happened. Jesus was divine from time immemorial. Some of these take their names from uh, the particular teacher who was teaching them. This next one, Apollinarism. This was an idea that Jesus had a human body and a human soul, but had the mind. The logos was located right somewhere here in the headspace. I call this zombie Jesus when I'm teaching this to students. Or the princess and the pea Jesus, right? That most of his, him is human, but there's something about there in there kind of hidden that is pure divinity. Apollinarianism. Arianism, one of the first big sort of heresies to kind of kick this Christological exploration off. That the Logos was created by God the Father. The first act of creation. And then through the Logos, God created everything else. And the problem with that is that that means that the, that the Logos was not pre-existent and eternal with the Father. So couldn't be co-equal with the Father but had to be subordinate to the Father. And they said, no, 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 what we understand about the Word is that the Word has existed for all times as in, as, and is in all ways equal to God the Father. So God the Father could not have created the Word. The Word must have existed from time immemorial as part of who God is. There's docetism, that Jesus Christ only appeared to be human but was really fully spirit. This is apparition Jesus just looked like he was human. There's monophysitism, that the two natures, the divine nature of God and the, divine na- and the human nature of Jesus, were blended together and mixed in such a way that it was some third thing that we've never seen before. I call this mayonnaise Jesus, because it's like when you take eggs and you take oil and you blend them together and you get mayonnaise, this third thing that didn't exist before, and you can't separate it back into eggs and oil. They said, no, no, this, mean, this would mean that Jesus was neither divine nor human, but this other third thing. Almost the other end of that spectrum is Nestorianism. And this is the idea, this is kind of like oil and water Jesus, where you have a fully divine and a fully human nature within this one person, but they don't intermix at all. They keep separate from one another. And so just like that bottle of Italian dressing that you don't shake up frequently enough, you have a vessel that contains oil and water. And you could shake it up, but it would always separate again. They said, no, this is not how it worked either. The Council of Chalcedon, the, the fourth council of the church, proposed an idea that became known as the hypostatic union, which just means that the fullness of a human being and the fullness of the divinity of God were joined together in the person of Jesus Christ. Neither one of them was diminished or made indistinguishable from the other, nor did they remain separate, nor was one subordinate to the other. They were joined together in a way where the full divinity of God and the fullness of being human were inseparable in a person and fully represented there. We have our own misunderstandings, I think, about the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus today. Some of them are probably just 
like a new coat of paint on an old heresy. But I think for us, like, we get hung up on this line of the conception of Christ and we start to get this idea uh, that when we say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we bring in our ideas of modern biology and, and read them into this word conceived. I mean, we understand that conception is the joining together of two cells, right? You take a male cell, a female cell, you join them together, they each contribute roughly half of the, the DNA that's necessary to make a, a human, and then they sh- the, the human grows and has traits from both father and mother. And some of those are obvious and some of them are not obvious, but there's kind of an equal contribution there. And so maybe when we see conceived by the Holy Spirit, what we think is, okay, so God contributed the male part and Mary had the egg and so that was the female part. And so he's, so Jesus is essentially like half God and half human. But that just falls back into some of those heresies like Apollinarism and Nestorianism, which kind of try to say that he's not fully human or fully divine in a different, in one way or the other, but is some kind of unique combination that's neither human nor divine, but a little bit of both. The writers of the Creed certainly didn't have that idea of conception in mind when they wrote. They weren't privy to our modern biological understandings of what's going on in the womb. An ancient understanding of conception was more like planting a seed in soil. And so the male contributed the seed, and the female provided the soil. That was the womb. And so just as you take a seed and you put it in soil like you're going to do when you take a seed for our CSA, and you're going to go put it in the soil at your house, you cover it over. Is that a good tie-in? That was a good tie. All right. You cover it over. And you understand that the seed contains within itself all of the instructions it needs to grow into the plant that it's supposed to be. But it also needs the soil. And the soil contributes to the environment of the seed growing and makes that seed into what it is. The conditions of the soil matter. But if you push that out too far, then you just get over into another kind of overreach usually Nestorianism, which says that, um, asserted that Mary only gave birth to the human part of Jesus and not the divine part. But the creed is making not a biological argument. Instead, it's trying to tell us that Jesus' birth was special, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that it was real. That he was born to a real person named Mary, a person with a history in the world. He didn't just walk out of the woods or out of the wilderness, but Jesus was actually born. It's special and it's real. What we're meant to understand in the conception of Jesus is that God is the sole actor in this and God alone. And we're going to come back to this in a moment. The word became flesh was God's free decision, is how Karl Barth puts it. This was not the ascent of man to God. That would be adoptionism. But this was rather, as Paul writes in the second chapter of Philippians, this was the descent of God to humanity. Karl Barth writes, What is meant when it is said that the Word became flesh and that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit is that this eternal Son of God took human existence into the community of existence with himself. There's nothing said about an intermixing of God and man or a change of God into man or of a man into God, but simply this, that without ceasing to be God, 
God becomes and is at the same time man. Perhaps the mystery of the incarnation is a mystery precisely because we are not meant to comprehend it completely. Maybe our minds just are not able to to comprehend all of the riches of the mystery of the incarnation. That we cannot satisfactorily reason to a conclusion about how Jesus could be fully God and fully human. If that's the case, then really all that's left to us, instead of trying to reason the incarnation, is to receive the incarnation and reflect on that. We receive that, as Karl Barth wrote, the incarnation of the Word of God is a divine decision. This was God's decision. Scripture tells us of a becoming, that 14th verse of John that we read, and that means that there's a history to the incarnation. But the Word, the Logos, existed before all time, co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and the Spirit. What is historical about it is that it became flesh. And this happened in time, an event with a history. But that doesn't mean that there was some sort of divine necessity. There's nothing about the word, the logos, that makes it necessary for it to take on flesh. That was a gift. We have no possibility of knowing or anticipating even that the word could have taken on flesh. That's above our pay grade. We can't know that. All we can know is that it actually did take on flesh. And we can follow that mystery. We have to receive that Jesus must be fully God and fully human. Theologian Alistair McGrath says that if Jesus is just a man like the rest of us, then he shares in our need for redemption. In other words, he can't redeem us. He's part of the problem, not a solution to it. But also, if Jesus is God and only God, then he has no point of contact with us. He cannot relate to those who need redemption. He is and remains wholly other. As human and divine, Jesus acts as a mediator between us and God. He fully understands and represents both sides. He identifies with our experience of suffering and despair because he's been there. Beyond empathy for us, Christ has sympathy with us. And we receive this mystery and truth as an act of faith, but we don't do so blindly. We're meant to continue to contemplate and to reflect on this great mystery. And the place that that contemplation begins for the incarnation is when the appearance of uh, the angel Gabriel to Mary in an event that we call the Annunciation or the Announcement. The Annunciation, to my mind, is one of the most powerful and overlooked miracle stories in the whole Bible. If we read it at all, it's only as a footnote as we're trying to get to the virgin birth story that we celebrate every Christmas. And that's a shame. It has all the best elements of all the good miracle stories in the Bible. There's an angel, there's this supernatural intervention, these lives are changed, we see the the plan of God unfolding in a brand new way. And this story has so captivated the minds of artists throughout history that it shows up over and over and over again in iconography and in paintings and in sculptures. And I brought five examples that I want us to look at for just a moment to explore. Let me put the first one up. This is an icon in the Russian Orthodox tradition of the Annunciation. So you see here the angel Gabriel who is coming to announce that Mary 
will conceive the Christ child, the Messiah. And Mary has her head bowed in submission and acceptance of that. And up in the, in the center there, you see sort of this blue orb with a, a laser beam coming out of it. And that is indicative of the spirit, the conception happening in that moment. We go on to the next one. We're going to kind of jump ahead uh, to the early 15th century. Uh, this is Angelico's Annunciation. This was part of a church altarpiece in Florence and is now in a museum in Madrid. And here we see sort of a similar theme, but it's expanded upon uh, just a little bit. Both the angel Gabriel and Mary are in bows to one another, this mutual submission. Over on the left-hand corner, uh, we see that we're collapsing all of history together because that's Adam and Eve being shown out of the garden. And then I don't know if you can quite see it, but in that shaft of light, right above Gabriel's halo there is a little dove kind of riding this beam of light. This is the activity of conception, the Holy Spirit coming and overshadowing Mary. And up in the center between the, uh, the arches is an engraving of the, the deified Christ. as a foreshadowing of what is to come. From about the same time period, about 50 years later, is da Vinci's Annunciation. You know the work of Leonardo da Vinci, and he painted a number of different uh, subjects, and like many artists of his time, uh, drew from the biblical story for his subject matter. Here, we actually have the angel Gabriel who is holding in his hand a, a lily, which became synonymous as an image with Mary, and also with the peace of Christ. Mary is reading the scriptures on this table here to kind of show that uh, she is um, she's well qualified to receive the Messiah, the gift of the Messiah. Those are images that are symbols that show up over and over in Annunciation pictures. Now, if we fast forward again, this time about 400 years to 1898, this next picture is uh, Henry Osawa Tanner. This is in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Tanner was an African-American uh, painter who had just returned from a trip to Israel and he paints this picture of the Annunciation with a very young-looking Mary, bewildered and maybe a little terrified. And Gabriel is this shaft of light speaking to her. And then the last one that I'll have us look at, and there are just dozens of these, uh, this is uh, Ted Prescott. The piece that, an installation he did in 19... 78. And in this, you can see Mary standing at a table there, and Gabriel is represented by these neon tubings that are all lit up. Between the two of them, you can see a, uh, a watercolor of a lily, that symbolism kind of still resonating through. And uh, one of the things that he added was he carved these um, loaves of bread rising in these bread pans kind of symbolizing both that Jesus Christ is the bread of life and also maybe a reference to the Eucharistic elements. I heard him explain this installation piece one time, and he said that uh, for him, the moment of conception is in the way that the light comes to rest upon Mary. So maybe with these images in mind, we can contemplate the mystery of the Incarnation. 
This miracle of conception draws on a long scriptural tradition. Justo Gonzalez points out that miraculous pregnancy is all over the Bible and by no means is limited to this story with Mary. You'll think back, you'll, you'll recognize that God raised up most of his leaders from miraculous pregnancies. Abraham and Sarah miraculously conceived Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah miraculously conceived Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Rachel had the miraculous conception of Joseph. Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, all were born to women who could not have children until the Lord intervened. God is showing God's activity and agency in all these cases. It's God who has brought this life into being. And early Christians would have understood Jesus' conception partially in this framework. Again, not focusing so much on the biological details of the conception, but linking it up with this pattern that over and over again, God raises up God's deliverers through a miraculous conception. But yet it's not like all those other miraculous conceptions. There's a mystery contained within the miracle. Remember how John, in the passage we heard read earlier, he drew upon the opening lines of Genesis to make a connection between the creation story and the opening of his gospel. And Luke does something similar when he writes about the conception of Christ. But he alludes to a different part of Israel's history. See if you can hear it. He writes that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and then said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And did you catch it? Did you hear the ring of the story of Israel in Gabriel's words? Luke has the angel, the angel Gabriel say to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's an unusual phrasing, overshadow you. It's the same word that is used to describe God's glory when it comes to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses says, let your glory pass before me, and God says, I'm going to pick you up and hide you in the cleft of the rock, then my glory will overshadow you. It's the same idea, the same concept, that in the same way the glory of the Lord overshadowed Moses, it would overshadow Mary, and the result would be that the glory of the Lord would take up residence within her womb. It also calls to mind the hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters in Genesis 1 verse 2. That resulted in the birthing of creation into the world when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And here, the Spirit of God hovers over Mary and we anticipate the birthing of the Redeemer of all creation into the world. The invitation in all of this is to be captivated by the immensity of the mystery. Karl Barth writes, God actually became what we are in order to exist with us actually to exist for us in order in thus becoming and being human, not to do what we do to sin, but to do what we fail to do, God's, his own will. And so actually in our place, in our situation and position, to be the new man. 
And this is why we call Christ Emmanuel, God with us, God and man united in the person of Jesus. This is a lot to take in. And I know I don't understand all of it. But in affirming that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're saying something that is true, even if only partly comprehensible to our own minds. We're asserting that the fullness of God became also the fullness of humanity, and at a particular point in time, without giving up any of the divinity or, accepting, or escaping anything of what it means to be human. God became human in order that God might fully identify with us and be for us and redeem us because we cannot possibly fully identify with God or redeem ourselves. The decision had to be his. The action had to be his. We can only receive the incarnation as a mystery and believe it through faith. Often when we talk about what communion means, we focus on the brokenness of the body of Christ and the shedding of his blood. And the elements are meant to evoke a memory of the sacrifice and its method. But there are other layers to the symbolism of the blood and the body. As we come to the table today, perhaps we will allow the elements to remind us of the physical incarnation of Christ. That the eternal, holy God took on physical form that had a body that circulated blood as real as the bread that you will hold and the juice that you will dip it into. And by participating in this real physical act each week, we affirm the real physical existence of God in human form. Because Jesus was fully God, he makes the way to reconciliation to God. We cannot approach God through any other means or by any other method. But because Jesus was fully human, he can identify with us as we are without limitation. He has made the path back to God. He's our ally and our greatest friend. As you approach the table this evening, I hope that you'll receive the mystery of the incarnation as you take his body and his blood. This table is the Lord's table and all are welcome here. The invitation is the Lord's. If you're serving communion this evening, I would invite you to come up as I pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess that our minds are too feeble to grasp the immensity of what it means that you took on flesh and condescended to human form in order that we might be elevated back into a relationship and right standing with you. As we come to the table tonight, help us to receive the mystery of your incarnation with wonder and with awe. Amen. Come, the table is open. The invitation is the Lord's. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.